right, Two Cities Church, I hope you guys are ready for this because today we end this series. If you're new, let me just tell you about something. Our series here serve the greater mission and vision of this church, which is to make and mobilize disciples in an environment of prayer and worship. We're always asking two questions. Uh, how do we make more disciples and how do we make better disciples? That's what we're doing. If you wondered, what are we doing this morning? Hopefully making more and better disciples. What are we doing next door in the kids' ministry? Making more and better disciples. But we always say that second part, we want to make and mobilize disciples, but how do we want to do it? What do we want it to feel like? We want it to be in an environment of prayer and worship, which is why we are having our first prayer and worship night of the year in this new building tomorrow night. Are you excited? Are you coming? I hope so, right? Guys, this is gonna be, look, I, I was working on the content for tomorrow night yesterday. And I had this, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to make this about me, but I was working on this content and I thought, this, what I'm about to share, if I can deliver it, we are gonna be talking about some of the most interesting, fascinating, sensitive topics. Because what we're gonna be doing is, we're calling it Kingdom and Culture, because I'm gonna talk about nine major, massive events that happened last year. And I mean, just get ready. And we're going to then say, how does the church pray about this? How do we think about this together? And we're gonna pray for these things. Because I think I told you a couple weeks ago, Charles Spurgeon said, uh, he's a famous Christian who's now passed. He said, every Christian should have a Bible under their right arm and a newspaper under their left. So we're gonna look what's happening in the culture and then we're gonna pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're asking, this is such an important event. We're only doing this three times this whole year. If you're in a community group, and I know many of you, most of you probably are, we're asking you to change or move your group to Monday night. We're asking you to do this as a community group. Take your first field trip as a community group, okay? <laughs> and come tomorrow night. It's gonna be, an, there's something guys about getting off of work and just coming to worship with your church family on a Monday night. It is just, it is a fireplace for our church and we are trying to build a response culture in this church where we say we pray and we obey, we sing and we bring. So let's start by praying uh, and then we're gonna dive into the church later. See you. Let's pray. Lord, we just take a moment right now and uh, that's what we wanna do. We wanna make and mobilize disciples and uh, that's not that unique. That's what every church is called to do but we uniquely feel called to do that in an environment, in an atmosphere, in a culture of prayer and worship. That's what we want marriages to be, a, a marriage that's in an environment of prayer and worship. That's what we want families to be. That's what we want community groups to be. That's what we want kids' ministry to be. Would you help to do it, Lord? Lord, would, would groups, community groups come together? Would you deepen and strengthen marriages and families? Would you do something unique as we come together tomorrow night as a church to seek your face? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, can I ask you just a personal question? Uh, when was the last time you threw up? <laughs> Don't say it out loud. But we all know, right? You're like, I know when it was. I didn't say when was the last time you cleaned up throw up parents, okay? You're like, this morning. <laughs> no, no, when was the last time you threw up? Guys, vomiting, there's so many different words for it, right? Puking, I, don't, I won't give them all. Vomiting is the most, I think, as I was looking at it this week, vomiting is the most violent thing your body does. And I think we can all agree that no one here likes to throw up, okay? Back in October, that was the last time I threw up. I won't, I'll save you all the details, but I woke up. This was the last night of a cruise ship. I was on a cruise ship with 5,000 of my closest friends. You know how that goes. And everybody gets, just if you've never been on a cruise, you're going to get sick. This is just what happens. And I woke up the last, the day that we had to drive 10 hours home. I wake up in the middle of the night and I have that thought. I'm gonna throw up. 
And I make it to the bathroom just in time. And that's enough about that story, okay? I won't get it. <laughs> Why do I tell you this? Turn to, t- turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, you make me want to throw up. That's what he says. If you want to know, if you're taking notes, what is the church at Laodicea? It's the nauseating church. There are some churches that make Jesus sick to his stomach. Now, I know if you know this passage, and not all of us do, and that's fine. If you know this story, or this, this letter, Jesus says to this church, and we'll get there eventually, he says, you're lukewarm, therefore I want to spit you out of my mouth. That's not what the literal, that's what translators put. The literal Greek is the word vomit. What I want us to see today is the last of the seven churches, which most people think is the worst church. Let's look. Chapter three, verse 14. Let me read this to you. Here's what it says. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, so lukewarm in Laodicea, that's that's where we'll be today. Write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. And look at this. He says this three times. What's repeated is important. You are neither cold nor hot. Okay, that's the first time. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are, here's the key controlling word, lukewarm. What's lukewarm? You're too hot to be cold and you're too cold to be hot. Think about that. Okay. And neither hot nor cold, here it is, I will vomit you out of my mouth. If you're new, here's what we've been doing over the last seven weeks. Jesus gives every church a report card. Do you remember getting a report card? And you thought, sometimes you got a report card, you thought, you get one halfway through the semester usually. You thought, I don't think I'm doing too well in this class. And then you get the report card, you're like, oh, praise the Lord, I'm doing better than I thought. Some of you thought you were doing well. You're like, I understand chemistry, I understand biology. And you get your report card, you're like, I do not understand chemistry. (laughs) I obviously do not understand biology. Jesus gives each church a report card. I thought it might be good just to remind us of the report cards we've seen so far. And remember, we're saved by grace, but we are evaluated by works. So Jesus comes and he says to each church, I know your works. Remember Ephesus? He said, you got a good head and a bad heart. Do you remember Smyrna? Hey, you're being faithful, but you're also being fearful. Do you remember Pergamum? Hey, you're doing well, but you could become worldly. Do you remember Thyatira? Thyatira, he says, actually, you have a good heart, but a bad head. You're trying to be more progressive than God. Do you remember Sardis? You're dead and you need to wake up. And last week we saw Josh did a great job with the Church of Philadelphia. You have an open door, you need to walk through it. Now, today, it's lukewarm. This is the worst of the seven churches. Why? This is the only church where there is nothing good said about it. Even Sardis, which is the second worst church, remember at the end, a couple weeks ago, if you remember that, he says at the end, at least there's a few of you there that are doing well. The problem with the lukewarm church is nobody is doing well. What does it mean to be lukewarm? Well, think stagnant, smelly. Lukewarm, and I'll get into this a little bit more, means that the church has become ineffective and unattractive and useless. This will all make more sense as I explain in a little bit. But I want you to first see how Jesus introduces himself to this church. I just read it to you. First, he says, I'm the amen, right? Some of you go, amen, right? Is it amen or is it amen? It's the same word. It's the same word. Okay, don't worry about it. Amen, amen. Here's what this means. That means, actually, here's a little Bible trivia. What is the last word in the Bible? Amen. In Revelation 22, the Bible ends with amen. Here's what amen. Why do we say it at the end of our, you know, we we do a lot of things we don't understand. Why at the end of prayers we say amen? 
It means it's a term of agreement. It's a term of affirmation. Here's what Jesus is saying to the final church. I am the final word. There are many different perspectives that people have, many different ideas, but I have, Jesus always gets the last word and the last laugh. Then he says, I am the faithful and I am the true witness. Now, if you know your Bible, you're like, well, why? Well, hold on, I'm supposed to, we're supposed to be witnesses, right? In fact, if you're new and maybe you're a seeker, a skeptic, checking out church or Christianity, here's something interesting to know about Christianity. Christianity is not based on what the first Christians believed. You go, huh? It's based on what the first Christians witnessed and what they wrote down, what they saw, they heard, they touched. And then he says, I'm the beginning. It doesn't mean he's not saying that I was created. He's the uncreated creator of all things. Beginning is the idea of I'm the source and I'm the origin of everything. So he says all that and then he confronts the church. I want you to see there's two things that he confronts the church about. Here, look, let's see this. Verse 15, here it is. I know your works. I read this to you before, but I want you to see it again. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So we'll deal with that problem in a second. That's the problem of lukewarmness. There's a problem underneath it. I, I didn't read this verse last time. Look here. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Here's their first problem, not realizing. We might say today, not being spiritually self-aware. Not realizing that you are, whoa, look, they're the exact opposite of what they thought they were. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What is the first problem of the lukewarm church? They're self-deceived. Here's the problem, and this is why this is a hard topic for me to talk to you about today because some of you are lukewarm. And here's the problem with a lukewarm Christian. They're the last ones to know it. Their wife knows it. Their mom knows it. Their kids know it. Their pastors know it. Their friends who are not Christians know it. They can't articulate it. They're like, it's just kind of strange. Jim says he's a Christian, but he lives just like us. They're self-deceived. Now, this is interesting. There's a principle in scripture, and let me give it to you. You can't know yourself by yourself, right? We all know this. Have you ever been to lunch with somebody and they have a little bit of ketchup on their face? Or someone has bad breath? You're like, hey, you want a breath mint? No, you sure, you know? I'm gonna have one, you want one? You ever have someone have a boogie hanging out of their nose? You're like, we're talking about vomiting and boogers? Well, you know. We have some of the kids' ministry in here today now. Um, you know, you're wiping your nose. You know, you, you, you. C.S. Lewis made it, I quote him a lot because he's a real smart guy you know, who wrote Narnia. He, he, he said that um, everybody has conversations about X. So X is, represents a person. So everybody has, throughout their life, they'll have a conversation about X. They're like, okay, you know, you know Tim? We, we talk about him after a community group. Tim, you know Tim? You know, he's so loud when he talks. Or you know Susie? Susie's so emotional. He, he says, no, what happens, this is what humans do. We talk about X when X isn't around. And then C.S. Lewis says, here's what you need to realize. Your X in a different conversation. You know that, right? There are things about you that people cannot stand. Some of it's strange, some of it's sinfulness, okay? And they talk about it when you're not there. See, here's the problem with us. 
we struggle with something called illusory superiority. That's a technical term, and I worked on pronouncing it, okay? <laughs> illusory superiority. It's been studied by a professor at Cornell, and it basically is this idea that we have an inflated view of ourselves. Here, we'll play a game. If you could rate yourself on how you're doing compared to other people that you know, what would you give yourself on a scale of one to 10? Do you know what most people think? Think of a number right now. Most people rate themselves seven. I don't know what number you chose. Well, I don't want to be arrogant. I mean, I'm not nine or 10 maybe, but I'm certainly not one, two, three, or four. Well, he did this long study and he found out that he did it with all the professors at the university and 94% of the professors at the university thought they were doing better than their peers. That's impossible. <laughs> he showed that there are three areas that we tend to really have an inflated view of ourselves. You ready? Number one, driving. <laughs> How many of you think your spouse is a good driver? <laughs> Don't raise your hand. Um, right? Some of you are like, well, every time I drive with my husband or my wife, I put my helmet on before I get in the car, right? That, that, is, that is an area in which, that, it was interesting, he, he, he found three areas. That, that's the most interesting, maybe. The second is um, job performance. People th tend to think they're better employees, better managers, have a higher RQ, or working better than their coworkers. The third is generosity. This guy's not a Christian, but he just was writing about it. There's just charitable giving. Most people think they're way more generous than they are. Most people are like, I'm generous, I, I, I smile at strangers. If somebody asks for directions, I give them. We are deceived because we cannot see ourselves by ourselves. Now, the question is, how do we stay deceived? Well, there's a couple ways. The way, here's a couple of them. One way we stay deceived is we compare ourselves with the wrong people. So if lukewarm Laodicea, Christian, at lukewarm, at First Baptist, Laodicea, lukewarm church, whatever it is, if, if he or she is looking around, he or she is looking at all of the other lukewarm Christians. So they think they're doing well because they're comparing themselves with somebody else. This is why a lot of people, especially golfers, love John Daly. Because <laughs> we like to compare ourselves with someone like, at least we're not as bad as that guy. I mean, look at him. What we tend to do is we tend to find somebody and that we're doing better in a certain dimension or, you know, element of our lives, and we compare ourselves to that person. By the way, this is why new believers are so good for churches. They raise the spiritual temperature. If you've ever met a brand new believer, and I hope you have, all of a sudden they're starting to confess sins to you, and you're like, you don't confess sin out loud like that. It's like, well, actually you should. We just don't anymore. And then they say things like, man, I was at work and I was telling people about Jesus and they were getting mad. And all the other Christians who've been Christians for a while go, no, no, you don't, you don't, you don't do that at work. You just live the life before them, right? I was meeting with a new believer the other day. It, un, unsolicited, I didn't say anything to him, wasn't asked about this. He said, I just got a raise. I can't wait to increase my tithe. Interesting. What a new believer will do, they haven't learned the lessons of lukewarmness yet. So they're sharing their faith, they're confessing their sin, they're giving generously, they're serving passionately. The second reason why how we stay deceived, first is that we compare ourselves with the, with the wrong people, uh, namely that. Secondly, 
we measure the, how the spiritual is going by how the physical is going. Make sense? So if things are going well physically, we think things are going well spiritually. Notice he said, you say I'm rich and I've prospered. By the way, Laodicea is the wealthiest of all of the churches by far. It was the, you could think Dubai of the day. And this church had, you, you know, it's, it's winter, so you've heard of influenza. This church had affluenza. They, they had all of their physical needs met so they didn't know any other spiritual needs. But here's the real reason that we stay deceived, okay? We lie to ourselves. Nobody lies to you, I promise you, nobody has lied to you more than you. We tell ourselves that we are big boned and chubby when we have a problem with food. We tell ourselves we like to relax and have a good time and unwind when we have a problem with alcohol. We tell ourselves our marriage is great when it's really a three out of 10 and we're sexless roommates raising kids. We tell ourselves our kids are doing fine because they're well behaved, but they're spiritually dead. You tell yourself you don't have a problem when you do. You tell yourself you're okay when you're not. And so Jesus comes to us today and he tells us, this is maybe one of the, I don't know how many, there's maybe like 10, 15 key themes in Jesus' teaching and here's one of them. Things are not as they often appear. Right? Sardis, you think you're alive, you're dead. Laodicea, you think you're rich, you're poor. Smyrna, you think you're dying, you're headed to life. Things are not as they appear, often. So he says the first problem is you're self-deceived. And that is actually what's sustaining you in your lukewarmness. So let's talk about the church being lukewarm. Verse 15, I know your works. I'm gonna read it one more time. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Okay, I've told you this, that Jesus always speaks to the church where it is. And uh, what's interesting about Laodicea, it was very wealthy, the wealthiest church, I just told you that, the wealthiest city. And you know, where do very, very wealthy people like to live? Well, as high up and on the side of a mountain as they possibly can. So that's exactly what they did in Laodicea. They built up really high, all these wealthy people did. And that was great because they could look down at others, metaphorically and literally. And, but, but the other thing was, is they, the, the hard part about that was they couldn't get water. I mean, this is 2,000 years ago. They couldn't get water up there. I mean, they tried. It's too much to go into detail, but there was these hot springs about six miles in one direction, and there were these cold springs six miles in the other direction. And they, I don't know how they did it, but they created some complex piping system to try to get that water up the hill. The problem was the pipes and everything else, it got all these like chemicals and it came to them lukewarm and full of chemicals and would often make them puke. So now you can see Jesus is saying, you are like the water in your city, you make me sick. What is a lukewarm Christian? I want to help you help define it. Well, Jesus, let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying when he says, I wish you were either cold or hot. He's not saying, I, I wish you were either like completely foolish and rebellious and atheistic or on fire for the Lord. That's not what he's saying. 
because he's speaking to them and they would have recognized this from the water supplies. He's saying, I wish you were hot or cold. Why? Because hot water serves a purpose and cold water serves a purpose, but lukewarm water doesn't serve any purpose. We know this. There are certain things that are good hot. Coffee, very good hot. Coffee, very good cold. Lukewarm coffee, gross, right? (laughs) And so he's saying, you are lukewarm. Here's what it means. To be lukewarm means that you are useless. And how does something get lukewarm? This is going to be important to understand how to not be lukewarm. How does something get lukewarm? It sits there and does nothing. I don't know. For some of you, that may define your Christianity. By the way, Christianity is a terrible hobby. <laughs> terrible. I mean, choose golf or pickleball. But Christian. But a lot of the average American treats going to church, being a part of a church, the Christian walk as a hobby. If I have time for it, if I can fit it in, it's something I do on the side. It's a piece of the pie. There's two words I would use to describe lukewarm Christianity. The first is it's comfortable, right? That's, that's the whole thing that Jesus is saying. You're prosperous, you're rich, you're saying I have no needs. Part of how you become a lukewarm Christian is you stop feeling your spiritual neediness. And no one likes to feel needy, right? This is why a lot of times you'll have a need and you won't want to tell somebody. This happens all the time. It's like, I'm, you know, your marriage isn't going well. It's like, well, as soon as we tell somebody that, I'm needy, you know? Sometimes people just, you, you came on, you know, you made some bad decisions financially or you lost your job or, and you're like, dude, if anybody knew how financially tight this was, like if we told our community group or something, like it would be embarrassing. No one likes to be needy. But if you haven't noticed, every song that we sing here is celebrating our neediness and what Christ needed to do for us. So a a lukewarm Christian forgets their neediness, but there's a more important thing I think that comes with this. A lukewarm Christian is complacent. Now I wanna talk about the difference between contentment and being complacent. The Bible says, and I think it's Hebrews 13, God says, be content for I will never leave you or forsake you. If you want a biblical definition of contentment, I'll give it to you. Here it is. You can carry this with you the rest of your life. Here's a biblical definition of contentment. God will take care of me. Complacent is the opposite. Now, what is the definition of complacent? Well, here's what's interesting. Every once in a while, you'll find an obscure passage in your Bible, obscure to us, that gives us a definition of a word. I want to show you this. I'll put this on the screen. In Zephaniah chapter one, we get a definition of complacency. Let me show you this. Zephaniah one, verse 12. At that time, this is God speaking. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. That's interesting. I'm going to go seeking after something. What's he looking for? And I will punish. Oh, I don't like that the way that sounds. I will punish the men. uh Uh-oh, here it is who are complacent. Now we get a definition of complacency. Here's what a complacent person says. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. A lukewarm Christian is a complacent Christian. What does complacency says? God's not really at work in the world. The complacent Christian says, you know what? 
it's two sides to it. The complacent Christian says something, you know what? I don't even know if God really disciplines us because I'm kind of doing what I want to do and don't feel like life's going too bad for me. And God says sin's a big deal, but I don't, God says personal holiness is important. I don't really see that. I don't really feel that. The, the complacent Christian says something like, you know what, and I don't even know if it matters what I do. Like, I don't even know if like, does God reward faith? Does God act and move in the world? A lukewarm Christian is a complacent Christian. Here's Jesus' word now. So he basically tells them their condition and then he gives them a word. Let me show you this. He says this, verse 18. I counsel you. I wanna stop for a second. I wanna talk about something because there's a couple other places Jesus says counsel and I've been waiting until now to talk about this. I wanna talk for a second about the difference between counsel and counseling. We're pro-counseling here, okay? We have a care pastor, we do a lot of counseling, we send a lot of people to counseling. Uh, but, you know, if you're under 40, it's cool to be in counseling, right? If you're not in counseling, you're in denial, right? If you're, if you're older than like 40 or 50, you, you would never tell someone you were going to counseling. I mean, I can't think of the baby boomer generation ever bragging or boasting, putting on Facebook that they're going to counseling. So in a good way, they, the younger generation has embraced counseling and therapy and all that. For a lot of people, not the counselor, okay? I'm, I'm not knocking counselors. I think counselors know what they're doing and they're great. A lot of people go to counseling to just tell the counselor their feelings. Well, this is how my marriage is and this is what my addiction feels like and this is what happened when I was young and all that. And that's great. But I wanna talk about what counsel is. Counsel is the root word of counseling. Counsel is... Listen to me and your life could be different. Counseling, or counsel, what I'm talking about here, is not just I want to tell Jesus my feelings, but here's what counsel is. I would like Jesus to tell me what to do. Some of you need counsel badly. It's, and it's okay. It's, it, we all start out as novices, okay? You just go, I have no idea what I'm doing with my money. I have, I have no idea how to raise a kid. I have no idea how to get married, stay married, any of that. It's like, fine. What you do is you find someone, here's what you do when you get counsel from someone. You find someone who is ahead of you. There's no shame in that. And, and, the, and the person who's ahead of you says something like this. I'm not where you are. Thank God. That wouldn't be very helpful if I was where you were. I have, maybe I've been where you were. Here's what counsel says, I know the way out. We want a culture here, I'll tell you, if you want your life to change, you need to seek some counsel. Counsel's like, look, I don't know what I'm doing. And I need you to tell me what to do. I mean, according to scripture, right? And, I, and, and listen, if you will do that, this is what counsel is, listen to what God has said and your life could look very different than it is, often very better than it is. Jesus comes and he says, I want to counsel you. And look what he says. He says this. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. In salve to anoint your eyes, salve or salve, I don't know how to say that word. <laughs> 
so that you may see. Um, he's telling us what salvation feels like. This is what he's telling us. So if you're new, you're not a Christian, it's hard to explain what it feels like to become a Christian. It's like, well, did I pray a prayer? I mean, what does he, what, people talk about being born again. What does all that mean? So Jesus gives us a couple descriptions. He says, here's what it's like. He's like, it's like being bankrupt. By the way, you know, we're, before you come to Christ, you're not just spiritually broke, you're spiritually bankrupt. And he says, what, what, what salvation feels like, it feels like being poor and then being unbelievably rich. That's what, that's what salvation feels like. He says, if you want to know what salvation feels like, he talks about garments. By the way, I didn't tell you this earlier, but they made a famous type of wool in Laodicea, a black expensive wool. And so he basically says, you make all this wool and, and they were all about how they looked on the outside. He says, you're naked. Now back then, by the way, they were much more modest in their dress um, than, we, than we are today. They, they would only let their hands and their feet and their um, face be shown. So to be fully naked was especially in that culture, very embarrassing and very shameful. And so Jesus is saying, you wanna know what it's like to become a Christian? It's like being naked, out in the cold, being brought inside and being given a warm set of clothes. And then he said, it's like being able to, being blind and being able to see. I don't know if you've seen this, but there are this new fad, I've just seen it on Instagram, this new fad of dark retreats. Have you seen these? Don't Google it right now, please. But um, the Aaron Rodgers did one of these. These are these, you, there's, there's whole business sets, nonprofits and all this other kind of stuff that does this stuff. Basically, you go away and you go into this, it's too much to get into detail, but basically you, you wear this thing on your face, you go into darkness. You don't look at anything, you don't see anything, you close your eyes or you're covered for two or three days. And, what, and if, you, if you look at this, it's kind of a strange thing, I know. And it's all about getting in touch with yourself and all that kind of stuff. But what's interesting is they have all these videos of people coming out of these dark retreats. You should watch them. They're very interesting because almost every, every video is like, at least everyone I've seen is like the exact same. They go outside, they take it off, they're, they're covering over their eyes and they just start to cry. And it had only been two or three days without them seeing. And that's in the physical world, what Jesus is saying is, is becoming a Christian is like being spiritually blind and then being able to see. In fact, the Apostle Paul's definition of faith in Ephesians chapter one is the eyes of your heart. Faith is the eyesight of the soul. It's the ability to see the invisible world according to God's written down word. So he gives us this beautiful picture here and then he tells us this. Here, look, I want you to see this. He says, okay, so if you're lukewarm, what, what do I do? So he's giving counsel here, here, and he's reminding you of the gospel, but then this is, he's, he's telling you what to do. Here it is. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Okay, now, Jesus is complex, isn't he? Because what does he say to the church of Laodicea? Church of Laodicea, you make me wanna throw up and I love you, right? Have you noticed that? Some of you are like, that's exactly how I feel about my kids, right? <laughs> We, you know, and if you're honest with yourself, in your best moments, that's how you feel about yourself. Jesus is saying, I love you, but I'm also gonna rebuke you or reprove you, and I'm gonna discipline you. So he, Jesus loves us, but his love isn't always maybe experienced the way that we think it should be. You know what's interesting? A couple weeks ago, I'm guessing, since it was the most watched televised event, sports event in human history that you, most of you probably saw parts of the Super Bowl. 
Well, during the Super Bowl, there was a very, you know, it was $7 million to run an ad in the Super Bowl. So there was an ad, he gets us, okay? We actually even got a couple emails asking us questions about this ad. I don't know the people who, personally, I don't know the people who sponsored this ad, but I know, I know who they are, I know the group, and, and what they're trying to do, they're Christians, okay? And they're trying to do what they would call pre-evangelism. That's an f- interesting phrase, but like, they're like trying to like, how do we get the conversation even started? But it was an interesting and confusing ad because it said he gets us, and then it was a bunch of people washing each other's feet and strange pictures, and then at the end it says, you know, Jesus, he gets us, Jesus didn't teach hate. End of commercial. You're like, well, what just happened? He gets us is not enough. It is the beginning. He gets us, but he also needs to cleanse us. He also needs to forgive us. He also needs to save us. This is why verses like this are often confusing to the average American that Jesus loves us, but he rebukes us and reproves us and disciplines us. This is why here we say it takes hard words to make soft people and it is soft words that make hard people. So Jesus is willing to give them hard words and he's even willing to discipline them, right? I know some of you go, I don't, we don't discipline our kids. We know, okay, we know that. <laughs> We've had them in the kids' ministry. We know you don't discipline your kids. And, and, and here's something you know too. Nobody likes being around an undisciplined child. And nobody likes being around an undisciplined Christian. Well, here's, what you, here's, here's just discipline 101. Like, because, you know, seriously, some of you young parents, you're like, we're doing the passive permissive parenting. We'll see how that works out. But listen for a second on this. <laughs> I, I mean, I've got three kids. I, I know a little bit what I'm talking about on this. Um, what you want to do with discipline is you want to, this is very biblical and very helpful to understand. You want to connect disobedience and pain. That's the principle of discipline. When you sin, I want you to feel the consequences. Timmy might go to timeout. You know, Danny might be deprived of, you know, dessert. Sally might not get screens. Sammy might get us banking, okay? You want to connect. This is the principle of discipline. I connect disobedience with pain. But then he says this, he says, here's, here's what, here's the, he gives you the opposite of lukewarmness. And wouldn't it be great if we had a church full of zealous Christians? What does it mean to be zealous? It's, it's enthusiastic, passionate, energetic devotion. Now, it's interesting, the Bible says that not all zealousness, not all zeal is good. Paul said to the Jews, his Jewish brothers and sisters, about his Jewish brothers and sisters, he said, they have a zeal, but not according, he says this in Romans, but not according to the knowledge of God. You wanna know a modern day example of zeal with no knowledge? Greta Thunberg. A young teenage girl screaming about things she doesn't understand. What is zeal? What's well, interesting, maybe we should ask, is there ever a time that Jesus is described as being zealous? Yes, one time. John, you don't need to turn there now. John chapter two, verse 17 is interesting. In John chapter two, verse 17, um, I'll tell you what happens, what, what the disciples said, and then I'll tell you what, what he did. The disciples, Jesus does something, and the disciples, it says, then the, then the disciples remembered 
the saying, zeal for your house has consumed me. Okay, so let's talk about this for a second. What did Jesus do that made the disciples remember a Bible verse that says, zeal for your house has consumed me? He just cleansed the temple. This is John chapter two. So Jesus, you know, he turns over tables. Okay, so what does all this mean? I'm trying to put this together for us. What does it mean to be zealous? Here's, here's what zeal is, and some of you need to do this today. Zeal says this, I need to do something about this now. That's how you know you're zealous. You're like, you're just, you're sitting here right now and you're going, you know what? My wife and I need to go to counseling now, as soon as possible, right? Because the problem with you is you'll do anything tomorrow. It's like, I need to confess this sin that I've been struggling with secretly now. Like I need to, before I get home, I'm calling, I'm texting, I, now. I need to start praying with my family tonight. This is what zealousness is. Zealousness says there is an urgency and there is an importance to my obedience right now in this area of my life. So Jesus gives counsel. He gives a strong word, but then he gives an invitation. Here, I'll show you this. This is how he ends. Behold, this may be the most famous verse uh, in the seven letters. Here it is. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, what's interesting is last week, Josh did a great job. He said, at the church of Philadelphia, there's an open door. Now we get to the church at Laodicea and what do we have? A closed door. Now, a lot of times when we read this verse, if you know this verse, if you grew up in church, you read this, church, this verse and it can give you the fuzzies inside. Oh, Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. And even sometimes we'll apply it and I think it's fine. But we'll apply this verse like personally to, in doing evangelism. Hey, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Are you going to let him in? And I think that's a fine application, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. Here's what Jesus is saying here. I'm on the outside of the church. Let me back in. I mean, could you imagine, I know I talk loud and fast, but could you imagine if while I'm talking, all of a sudden we heard someone banging on the door. We're like, who is it? Open it up. It's Jesus. <laughs> We've kicked him out of the church. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying somehow the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm Laodicea church has kicked me out and I am on the outside. And he's saying, would you invite me in? Now, it's interesting. I wanna show you a picture, okay? And this is a painting that was painted. There's many paintings of this moment. But this is a, a, a picture painted by, um, let me remember her name real quick. This is a, a picture by Eva Kaliva Timothy. And she painted this, I love this image because one, you, you can't see exactly what Jesus looks like. You just see him from the back. It appears to be at night. He comes to the door. But here's what's interesting. If you, you can Google this. If you Google different paintings, of Jesus knocking at the door, they all have one thing in common. If you look at it, what you'll notice is there is no handle on the outside of the door. The only way for that door to be opened is from the inside. You can take the picture down. The, the question is, are we going to open the door and let Jesus Christ in? 
See, here's what a lukewarm Christian does. A lukewarm Christian only lets Jesus into certain areas of their life and not others. They're probably one of the most famous sermons ever preached on this passage uh, it's called My Heart, Christ Home. And it was, it was preached by a minister, a Presbyterian minister. And in this, in, in, he saw that painting and he, he, he writes this sermon that became a little booklet. It sold 10 million copies. And you can Google it. I think you can get it as a PDF for free. But basically he says, here's what, here's what happens. And, and the, the, the little booklet starts and Jesus knocks on this guy's house one day. And he opens up and says, oh, it's Jesus. He, Come on in. And he said he was glad because he had just cleaned the house. And so Jesus came in and we were sitting down and Jesus said, can I go upstairs? And he said, ah. He said, okay, fine. And so he goes upstairs. He says, he gets upstairs and he looks around a little bit and he says, I smell something up here. It stinks. And he says, he starts to look around. He goes, oh, you know where that's from? He says, there's a closet over here. He says, and Jesus goes to open the closet and it's locked. And he says to the guy, can I get in there? And the guy says, no, you can't get in there. There's things in there I don't want you to see. And Jesus says, well, then I can't stay in this house if I can't get in that closet. So he starts to head down the steps and the guy says, you gotta read the whole story. But the guy finally says, okay, come on, get up here. And he tells the story of Jesus going into that hall closet, cleaning it out and how free he felt afterwards when he fully gave the keys of his entire house over to Jesus. Let me just ask you this as we're closing, because here's what a lukewarm Christian does. A lukewarm Christian does not listen does not invite Jesus into every room in their, in their lives. What I wanna do, if you'll bow your heads, I wanna end a little differently today. I, wanna just, I just wanna pray over us different prayers, not just for the lukewarm, but just, just wherever we might be on these seven churches. I just wanna give you a chance to respond at the end of the series. I want you to just think about yourself for a second with me. I want you to think, are you like, some of you are, come on, just be honest. You don't need to raise your hand or anything, but some of you are like the church at Ephesus. That would define your life. You have a big head and a small heart. I just wanna give you a second right now just to say, Lord, would you change my heart? God, you have me in this church and in this series for a reason. I don't wanna be like that anymore. I don't wanna have a small heart and a big head. I want a big head and a big heart. Some of you are, you feel like you're the church of Smyrna right now because you are just suffering and you're afraid. And that's what suffering does to people. It makes them afraid. And would you just say, you know what, I, I, God, I'm trying to be faithful. Would you help me not be fearful? We're gonna, we're gonna by the way, if you wanna come up during this last song, we're gonna, we'll pray for you on the sides here. Some of you are like Pergamum. You know, you're just, you're, you're tempted to be worldly. And you, you make more money now and you've got more options and you've got the good job. And you're tempted to value the temporary over the eternal. Ask God to help you. Some of you are like Thyatira and you just, you, you just want to love people. You do, you, you've got a good heart for that. But in loving people, you often want to compromise scripture. And would you just ask God for, to make you tender and tough? Would you say, Lord, can I please be tough on sin, but tender with sinners like you are? Can I love, but still rebuke? Some of you are like Sardis, you are dead. And you know, God's got to do the work, but would you come alive? Would you transfer trust to Christ? Some in Sardis were asleep and they need to wake up and they need to strengthen what, what remains. Some of you right now, you are like the church at Philadelphia and God has put a door in front of you. 
Would you walk through it? Some of you just need to say, you can't, you can't walk through a door you can't see. Some of you need to say, Lord, show me the door. Show me the door in my marriage. I don't see it. Show me the door with my kids. Show me the door with my finances. Show me the door out of this addiction. And some of us just need to confess that we have been lukewarm. We have been complacent. We have said God doesn't work anymore like he used to. That's how God used to do things. God doesn't punish sin anymore. God doesn't reward righteousness anymore. It doesn't matter whether I do good or evil. Lord, would you help us? Lord, we want to be a useful church for your glory and our good, Lord. We wanna be an effective church. We wanna be an attractive church. We wanna be a counterculture. Would you help us, Lord? Lord, as we sing this last song, would you bring help? Some in here need help. Would you bring hope? Some in here need hope. Would you bring healing? Something powerful happens as we come together. Would you work mightily as we close our time together in Christ's name? Amen.